Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment. This is a show for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general. And it's a show for musicians, singers, songwriters, artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm your host, Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated. Check out nhte.net and be sure you are subscribing to this show and telling your friends to do so as well. Besides that website, you can also find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and TuneIn Radio. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from New York, my guest is a recording artist, multi-instrumentalist, and record producer. He has drawn accolades from the New York Times, Billboard Magazine, the Washington Post, and more. His current run at New York City's Rockwood Music Hall has now sold out for two and a half years, performing alongside Grammy-nominated and Grammy-winning special guests. He has also headlined around the globe, doing 100 concerts across 50,000 miles of touring on both sides of the Atlantic this past year alone. He is also the founder and owner of a global music company that we'll talk about called ECR Music Group. You've been hearing a song of his entitled, I Can Hear You Say. It's my pleasure to welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Blake Morgan. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely, Blake. Many thanks for taking time out of your day to speak with me. It's my pleasure. That was a great intro. It's like like hearing your whole life unfold. That actually sounds pretty good. (laughs) Well, it's true, and uh, it's it's impressive that that you've done all that. Not not that I was able to read it. Not that I put it together that way. Let's let's give credit where credit's due. Uh, No doubt we've got a lot of ground to cover, but let's start first with having you tell the listeners all about the song that we were just playing called I Can Hear You Say. Oh, sure. Uh, That's it's the second so- uh, song on my on my most recent uh, studio record, which is called Diamonds in the Dark, and uh, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek song. Um, if you pay attention to the lyrics of the song, it's it, it's it's me actually saying terrible. It sounds like it's me saying terrible things about somebody else, but it's really mm. me repeating the terrible things somebody else might be saying about me. Mm. So. <laughs> um, I can hear you say that I was trouble. I can, you know, it, it's it's uh, it's sort of uh, it, there's a little of a, a little bit of a puzzle in the song, but but uh, it's it's become a, a mainstay in my shows, and I often start the show with that. So it's uh, it's one of my favorites. And Blake, are you someone that writes exclusively by yourself? Uh, you co-write. You kind of do a little of each. Which is it? No, I you know I writing for me is actually a really solitary thing. Record making is a really not solitary thing and that's a really collaborative thing so when i put on my producer hat and i'm producing a record for an artist or a band that's incredibly collaborative and that does get into songwriting a lot of times um certainly arranging um and you know and actually making the record that's that's a really collaborative uh experience for me and i think i kind of get my my musical rocks off um in that department from a from a collaboration standpoint writing for me is really solitary and it's not uh it's not because I'm excluding anybody else. I'm excluding myself. <laughs> I'm just, uh, it's something that I, I, I write songs over long periods of time, and I really whittle and polish them. So, mm. um, yeah, it's, it's a, it, I think between those two parts of my musicality, I, I end up kind of satisfying all of the different parts of uh, just all the different things I want to do in music. Well, forgive me, I take great pride in the tremendous research that I do for all my interviews, but I don't know if I'm aware, do you self-produce, or is it a case of where, even though I do put that much time in my songwriting and I produce other people, I let someone else produce me? 
I used to. My first record, a uh, record called Anger's Candy, uh, was produced by the great Terry Manning, who was the recording engineer on Led Zeppelin III and produced everyone from ZZ Top to Lenny Kravitz and Shakira. And, hmm. so, uh, and I've worked with Phil Nicolo, who's another Grammy-winning producer. And uh, he's, the two of them uh, are sort of two Obi-Wan Kenobis for me in my, in my <laughs> own yeah, development as a, as a producer. But starting, you know, about 10, 10 12 years ago, I really, I, you know, that was when I started producing all my own records uh, as an artist for myself. But in the early 2000s, that's when I really stepped up as a producer, and I've, I've, I've made, I don't know, 35, 40 records for, for other artists, um, some of which uh, uh, are not part of the label that I started, most of which are part of the label I started. So that's, that's something you know, maybe we'll talk about later, but, but all of the artists who are signed to ECR Music Group, all of their, I produce and record all of their records. So it's, that's really sort of a... a, a an extension of the recording studio and what I do in the studio. But when an artist finds themselves to the point where they're developing as a producer, how does one make that decision, Blake, as to do, you know, as to sit siding on, well, I'm too close to this. I need someone else to produce this versus I am the one that knows what sound I want and I'm going to self-produce. How, how do you, how do you make that decision? Well, it, it's like anything in, in music, you know, you, you have to make the decision because you have, you, you have to make that decision based on the vision that you have. So again, me producing myself isn't really a conflict of interest any more than me singing the songs I write is a conflict of interest mm. for me. But there are a lot of songwriters out there who have no intention of singing the songs sure. that they wrote. And there are a lot of great singers out there who have no intention of writing the songs that they sing. Exactly. But that's not a conflict of interest any more than producing one's own record is. Um, and in fact, on Diamonds in the Dark, except for drums, I played all of the instruments on the record. Wow. And again, that's not, you know, and, and that's not like, oh, look at me, I can play all these instruments. Sure. It's just, I, I, make, I make the kinds of records that I would want to listen to. And that was what I wanted to do on that record. I don't know if I'll do that on, my, on, the, next, on the next one, but mm -hmm. uh, that's, that was the vision for that one. So it's really just based on one's vision. And uh, I get a lot of help and when I'm mixing a record of my own, I send it to a lot of smart musical people who can, you know, who give me their feedback, and, and, and it's kind of like a red team, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not that I don't make it in isolation, but I think that the, you know, I, I'd, I'd rather, at the end of the day, I'd rather have, you know, what's the saying? A, a camel is a horse created by committee. I'd rather have a horse than a camel, not to have a go at the camel, you know, there's nothing wrong with a camel, but, <laughs> but um, you know, so I think the, I, I'm in a fortunate position, and, and one that I've, you know, purposely created for myself, which is that the, the distance between the vision that I have and how I can realize it is a very short distance, and that's what I want. So that's, I think the, the recording studio really is, is an environment for that for me. And over the last couple of years, with all the touring that you mentioned, you know, I've been performing solo for the last two years, which I really hadn't done extensively before that. I'd always played with a band, but I'm really enjoying performing solo. And it brings me, at least right now, closer to the audience than I've ever been uh, emotionally, because there's really just me and there's just them. So there's no, there's no, um, there's no fat. It's all muscle and bone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like it. I like it. Listeners, if you want to hear a guest talk from that side of the console, uh, Dave Pensato, a very, very well-known mix engineer, 
he was on this show back on episode 160, 160, if you want to go back and listen to my interview with him. Uh, listeners, it's timely that we get Blake on the show. Recently, the Huffington Post pulled an article that was building momentum. It was Blake's views on Spotify, which if you are a regular listener of this show, you know that we've talked from time to time about the Catch-22 fact that a lot of artists want their music on there, yet they get paid a fraction of a penny for their song being streamed. Anyhow, Blake, as the Huffington Post detailed, you were part of a closed-door artist-only meeting uh, at Spotify with with, uh, some of their executives, and it ended with voices escalating. I don't know if you want to talk about the article getting quote-unquote unpublished, but uh, the bigger focus here, in my opinion, is what was at the very heart of that heated discussion at the end of the meeting. Sure. Um, Yeah, I I mean, I think think this the Huff Post part is, is really a detail, and and the reason that it's it, it's it isn't more than that is because the piece got out anyway and and went viral and has really um, accomplished what I was hoping it would uh, from the get go, which is I wanted to try to spark a debate in this country about Spotify's behavior towards artists and also the dangers that that company faces now moving forward. Um, they've behaved their way into a situation that I think is a really dangerous one for them. So um, I think HuffPost made a mistake, and I think it's it's been a it's been a bad week or so for them. Yesterday morning, in fact, I got an email, like a lot of people did, where they are now announcing, uh, having denied doing any anything wrong. Um, <laughs> mm. Although it did come out that the CEO of Huffington Post used to work at Spotify. Um, <laughs> the uh, they've announced that they're actually uh, they're they're closing the entire contributor platform on Huffington wow. Post. Wow. Wow. So um, I, I do think that the timing of that announcement is is uh, interesting. I'll say that. So <laughs> I think there are changes happening over there, and it's been a bad week for them. Um, but you're right. You know, the, the 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 piece wasn't about them. It was about Spotify, and it was specifically about this closed door meeting um, that I had a couple years ago. Um, you know, and I, I start uh, the, the title of the piece is Spotify's fatal flaw exposed how my closed-door meeting with execs ended in a shouting match, I start the piece by saying I love streaming, and I do. I love making playlists, and I love being able to take my music with me. Um, so, you know, but what I don't love is how, uh, how little musicians get paid for all of that streaming. Right. And so I ask this question at the beginning of the piece, which is, well, how can I, um, you know, how can I be against uh, how music makers are paid by Spotify, uh, or by streaming in general, but still love streaming. So how can I be against how music makers are treated uh, by streaming, but still love streaming? Well, it, pretty much the same way that I'm against the, the electric chair, but I'm not against electricity. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, streaming is, it, it, it's neither good nor bad, it's, it, it exists. What is good or bad are how streaming companies actually behave towards the people uh, who are making the only thing of any value on their platforms, which is music. So the closed door meeting, um, and you know, people who are listening, it, it'd probably be just good to go and read the piece, which is easily found just about anywhere now. Yeah. Um, but but uh, the the crux of the meeting, I was invited to a, an artist only meeting with Spotify execs. It was me. It's about forty different artists. Uh, this was in New York a couple of years ago, and it seemed that Spotify was sort of looking for this to be a Kool-Aid drinking, sort of like, look how we're saving you, and we're doing so great. And they were very taken aback by the fact that all of the artists in the room were incensed. Um, so it was, a, it was a heated meeting, 
um, mm-hmm. from the get-go. But, mm-hmm. And I was a vocal participant in the meeting, but at the end of the meeting, I was surrounded by some executives, and they kept talking to me uh, about how fantastic their product is and how I just don't seem to understand that they've come up with this amazing product. And I finally said, like, you keep using this word. Uh, I'm not trying to have a go at you or anything, but, like, what is your product? Like, what, when you say that, what are you describing? Um, and this executive looked at me in the face and said, what do you mean? Our product is Spotify. <laughs> and that was where the heated exchange began. And you can read about how it unfolded, but I, I tried to explain to this uh, man that, no, their product is not Spotify. Their product is music. Yeah, I loved the, the analogy that you wrote in there um, about Starbucks. Yeah, and that's what I said to him. I said, listen, the reason I know that music's your product is that if we went out into the street right now and asked a 1,000 people what Starbucks product is, they'd all say coffee. No one would say, oh, Starbucks product is, is Starbucks. It's absurd. And, it, you know, any first-semester business student knows the difference between a brand and a product. Well, yeah, because you don't say, let's go to Starbucks to get some Starbucks. You say, let's go there to get some coffee or tea. And you don't say, let's put on Spotify so we can listen to some Spotify. Right. Any more than Ford Motors product is Ford Motors. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so, you know, um, and I think that that's really the most dangerous phenomenon over at Spotify. Spotify has a lot to be worried about right now. Their impending stock market offering, um, you know, could be weeks away, months away. Um, But they're putting themselves in a position where, uh, you know, massive class action lawsuit after massive class action lawsuit has been filed against the company over the last year for willing and widespread copyright infringement. Um, The latest lawsuit is for, uh, for $1.6 billion mm. by Wixon Publishing, whose analysis is that as much as 21% of all of the music that Spotify has on their platform could be there without proper licenses, could be wow. there illegally. Wow. And it's really important to remember, you know, it's been a, it's been a tough year for Spotify in a lot of ways. Um, they, they're so happy to constantly say, well, we've got 50 million subscribers. Now we've got 60 million subscribers. Now we've got 70 million subscribers. They also lost $600 million last year. Mm. And on top of that, the more subscribers that they get, the per stream rate to music makers goes down. Well, and I think you even said in there, uh, to, you said that in your meeting and, and in this heated debate at the end, I, I think you said something about please stop w- using the word uh, was it users? And you, and you said that... Yeah, they yeah. refer to their users, you know? And, subscribers. and what I said to him was, you know, you, they're not users, they're listeners. They're our listeners to our music. And I said to him, uh, you know, you're the user. <laughs> you're using <laughs> our music to monetize our listeners for your profit, right? And it's a classic thing where the company, you know, they, they, they lost $600 million last year, but their board of directors are making tens of millions of dollars a year, right? Wow. But this was, you know, this was the year that the public really kind of turned around and started looking at them a little bit more like the way the public looks at big oil or big tobacco. Like, okay, mm-hmm. you guys aren't, you, you're, not, you're not doing good in this world. Mm-hmm. Um, the per stream rate drop, dropping is one part. The copyright infringement is another part. And to me, here's the part that I think speaks so viscerally to... Uh, to, to where people are at, at in this particular moment um, in history. You know, this was the year that people really 
started looking at how the money works at Spotify. And here's how it works in the simplest terms. It takes 380,000 streams for a music maker to make minimum wage on Spotify. Mm. You need to have 380,000 streams to make $1,400. Wow. That's minimum wage for a month. Wow. Okay? 380,000 streams, by the way, is like borderline superstar status. Okay? <laughs> so if you're a middle-class artist and you're used to selling five to 10,000 records, you know, five to 10,000 streams is going to pay you a handful of dollars, right? Yep. So music makers, to get minimum wage, you need 380,000 streams. Meanwhile, the average Spotify employee, the average Spotify employee makes $14,000 a month. Mm. Wow. So this is a playbook that we've already seen, and Spotify has already seen, but they don't seem to care. And I think that the dangerous thing that Spotify is facing is kind of this, you know, culty kind of weird, <laughs> we're the good guys uh, mentality. <laughs> it's very different than other parts of the music world that activists and artists like myself are fighting about as well, like big radio um, or Pandora, which is really how I arrived on the scene as an, as an activist, because I had a dust up with Pandora. You know, but Spotify is different than Pandora, and they're different than the National Association of Broadcasters. Uh, neither of whom are paying music makers particularly well. They're different because they really do have this religiosity about themselves. And that's what I wrote, r really wrote the piece about. That, that mm -hmm. exchange I had with that executive about what's your product, it's more than just semantics. And it's, it's sure, funny sure. on some level, but it's not funny on the levels right, that right. deeply matter. They right. really believe this is about them. It's not about them. They're just a company, Right. They're just a streaming platform. And if they went away, there would be other streaming platforms. Yep. Streaming Absolutely. Yeah. isn't and, going anywhere. Yeah, and on that note, um, because I do want to get into some other things here, but but listeners, you know, I, I like the point that Blake made. It's, it's a good point for me to jump in because the point is, especially if you're a listener who listens to this show because you are a musician, you're an up-and-comer, you're an aspiring entertainer, and you're trying to learn from the guests every week, Learn from from the point that just that Blake just made that there are countless services out there. So from the category of don't put all your eggs in one basket, you know, as I mentioned, everybody wants to be on Spotify, yet you make a fraction of a penny from it. So you need to. It's it's like there was a Bruce's bonus tip that I gave out on one episode where I said you can't go to a venue. And they confront you and say, where is your turnout? Where is your fans? Why do you not have anybody here? You can't say, well, I put it on Facebook. That's not the only place that you promote. Just like Spotify is not the only place you try to get your music heard. So I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> because Blake, I, <laughs> I, good one. I really want to talk about your music and your performing. But while we are talking about Spotify, we've got to bring the listeners in on your global music company that I referred to in the intro, ECR Music Group. So let's break sure. this up into two different questions. The first will tie together my desire to, to get to hear music and performing and how that relates to ECR Music Group. <laughs> and then my second question will help the listeners understand how big that effort is. So first, just talk about not only the vision that you had in forming ECR, but actually prior to that, you're having signed a seven-album deal with Phil Ramone's N2K Sony label. Sure. So right at the beginning of my career, I, I got a big record deal um, with, with Phil Ramone. Uh, he started a new label at the time called N2K, which was dis distributed through Sony Red. And uh, it was really kind of a dream situation. I got an enormous deal. 
I got to make my first record with Terry Manning. Um, I really got everything I wanted. The music-making portion of that experience was spectacular. It just couldn't have been better. And mm-hmm. Phil was an absolutely lovely guy who really kicked off my career. And he really had a great idea for the label that he wanted to start. Unfortunately, you know, if he was here, he would, he would say the same thing that I'm about to say, which is that he just really didn't know how to run a label. Mm-hmm. He'd never done that before. Um, and he also got a lot of bad advice. And the label, you know, very soon after my record, my first record coming out, I could, I could smell that there were trouble, there were, there were problems at the label. Um, and, I, and I think that there was a lot of, um, there, was a lot, there was just a lot of talk and not a lot of walk. And, and about a year into my deal, even though I got great reviews and uh, terrific commercial success and critical acclaim, and it was really, from that standpoint, it couldn't have gone better. But I could tell that long-term this was going to actually really be dangerous for me. Um, and the worse and worse it got, I finally went to Phil and I was like, listen, I, I, I'm going to, it's going to break my heart, but I've got to get out of my deal. And things were looking bad for the label in general. And Phil actually helped me get out of my deal, which is really generous of him. He didn't put up a fight. And in fact, he did everything he could to make sure that I'd be free of the deal and have a chance to do whatever I was going to do next. He was very gracious about it. But it was a heartbreaking experience for me because I was back to a situation where I was showcasing for other labels. Um, oh, do you have any demos of new stuff you're doing? And it's like uh. my record had just come out, and Lenny Kravitz sings a duet with me, and I just couldn't believe that I was back in the swamp of trying to impress label executives. Yeah. And the long and the short of it was, um, I was, and also I was hurting for money. And so that was really when I started producing other artists, because I was the person in my sort of, you know, sphere that had gotten the big deal, a lot of artist friends of mine and a lot of bands were asking me to produce their, their demos. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so I had this uh, label showcase. Uh, I was back into showcasing for other labels, and I had this afternoon label showcase, which for any musicians out there, it's the worst uh, artistic experience you could ever have. It's at like 4.30 in the afternoon in a mm. sterile rehearsal studio, and people stand in front of you with their arms crossed and sort of go, oh, how interesting, you're... <laughs> You're bleeding your life's work out on stage for me. How fascinating. And they're glancing (laughs) at their phone or their watch or both. That's right. That's right. And so I, it was a terrible experience, and I really looked at myself in the mirror afterwards and just said, what am I doing? Why am I asking permission from these people to make the music I want? Mm. Um, I've got to find out. I've got to figure out some other way to do this. And about a week later, I did get some offers out of those showcases, and I was walking down the street with my mother, in fact, who's a writer, and I turned to her and I said, you know, if I had any guts, what I would do is I would start my own label. And all the bands that I'm producing right now, these wouldn't be demos. These would be records. Mm. And if we sold 100 copies, we'd be proud of it. And it would be something. We'd have a place to start. And all yeah. of our victories would be sweeter because we're doing them together. Our defeats would be softened because we'd learn from them. If I had any guts, that's what I would do. <laughs> and my mother turned to me and she was like, yeah, you know what? If you had any guts, that is what you would do. <laughs> And I, I, I bent over right in the middle on, on Fifth Avenue. And, well, I mean, she wasn't being mean. She was well, just no, like, yeah, but, but now you figured I'm, it out. I'm saying, come on, Mom, because it's like when your mom challenges, it's like, well, now i yeah. got to do it. This is my mom. Right. This isn't, you know, my buddy it. or a business partner. This is my mom. It's like, well, darn it. You know, she's the one that made me. She knows what I'm made of. I, I, she knows right. I can pull it off. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And I, I just sort of doubled over on Fifth Avenue and put my hands on my knees. And I was like, oh. This is what I have to do. Oh, my God. And that's really where the label started. Um, And and it was an extension of the recording studio. And um, 
the idea of the label, based on what I'd gone through with my own label deal, is I want to start a place where we had where the, where the inmates were running the asylum, <laughs> and where uh, all of the artists would own 100% of their master recordings, yeah, and they would own 100% of. of their song exactly, and own 100% of their song publishing as well, and that the the label wouldn't sign the artist, they wouldn't sign the human, they would sign the work of that human. So, in other words, if you had a deal with us, we would be signing the record that you just made, and then we'd be signing the next record that you just made. And that's also unheard of in the music industry, because record executives come to me, and they're like, well, Blake, what happens if you, know, you work really, really hard, and you build up Bruce's career, and then all of a sudden, you know, Universal Music Group comes in and swoops him up and takes him off to their label? Mm-hmm. And my response is, well, they wouldn't swoop in and take him off, Bruce would have to make that decision. And by the way, if Bruce preferred to do that and go in that direction, he should be able to. Mm. Our job as a label should make that an impossible situation for him because he'd be too happy with us. And in 15 years now of running the label, guess what? That's never happened. Nobody's Fantastic. ever done that. Fantastic. So, and that, I think it keeps us honest. It keeps the artist honest. It keeps, you know, here in New York anyway, there used to be these ads when I was a kid of the hair club for men yep. where <laughs> the guy would say, I'm not just, a, <laughs> not just the, the president of the company, I'm also, I'm also a client. A client. Yeah. And I'm kind of like that with ECR because I'm signed to the label too as an artist, separate of me owning it. It's its own entity, and I play by the same rules as all the other artists. So Fantastic. that was the environment I wanted to create. A lot of, you know, the, the cliche is necessity is the mother of invention. In my case, it was desperation was the mother of invention. I, I didn't know what to do next. Yeah. I didn't know how I was going to put my music into the world. And that was where ECR came from. Well, go ahead and transition from that, uh, like I said, into into part two of my question, which is, you know, you, you're talking about the, the label, and, and um, there, there's a movement that, before I let Blake explain, listeners, I want you to understand the impact that he and his company and this movement are making. What he's about to describe has drawn support from the likes of Gavin DeGraw, uh, Aerosmith, Joe Perry, um, shameless plug. Uh, hopefully you've heard my interview with Buck Johnson on this show, who is the keyboard player for Aerosmith. Uh, Jane Fonda, Marissa Tomei, Roseanne Cash, many more are supporting this movement uh, that Blake is about to tell us about. Go ahead and, and fill the listeners in on what this is that I'm referring to, Blake. Well, the I Respect Music is a campaign that I started uh, four years ago. In fact, almost to the day of us doing this interview. And uh, it came... It was born out of uh, an op-ed that I wrote, an article I wrote, actually, for the Huffington Post. <laughs> but let me jump in. Is this is this under the ECR Music Group umbrella, I Respect Music? No, it has nothing to do with my oh, label. Oh, okay, ha- okay. And it has nothing to do with... It, the only thing that is related to my label is that this is an ethical label that's been an artist's... <laughs> you know that, that's that's been founded on the principles of artist rights from the get-go. Okay. So the the connection is, you know, I I was hopefully walking that walk years and years before I Respect Music ever came, you know, uh, to the forefront. Um, but uh, I Respect Music has grown to become the largest grassroots movement in American music history. If you go to irespectmusic.org, you'll see, you know, the the campaign itself, which is very simple. But again, about four and a half years ago now, I got into this public uh, email exchange with uh, Tim Westergren, who was the founder of Pandora, and that really kind of put me on the map as, a, as an artist advocate. And just a couple months later, Pandora, uh, because of the bad press that they were getting, they, they withdrew their signature legislation on Capitol Hill, which had been designed to lower 
uh, artist royalties by up to 85%. It was a victory at a time when music makers hadn't scored a lot of victories. And so there was a huge sort of galvanization of will. And I wanted to think, well, what can I do next? I'm on CNN and I'm, on, I'm in the New York Times and I'm mm-hmm. getting attention for having helped win this victory. Mm-hmm. How do I galvanize this moment? How do I turn this into something uh, that we're, where our will will actually, um, you know, is, is something that we can, we can wield. Let, in let a me interrupt way. you because it, cause you deserve to be credited here with the fact that you didn't say, how could I monetize this or how could I exploit this? No. So I'm taking my hat <laughs> off to you because a lot of people oh, would turn that into, hey, I've got all this attention. I've got the focus of the major news media here. I got to see how I could cash in on this. So uh, very, right. very noble of you to say, what can I do next for music? Well, thanks. And and uh, that's true. That that was and is my approach. But but to to sort of square the circle for you, I I, I absolutely do want to get monetized for this. But I of want course. to get monetized along with all other music makers to of get course. paid fairly. So exactly. <laughs> my attitude yeah, was, of course. you know what, I should get paid for this, and so should the millions of other people who make music. You but know, the key word being um, fairly. I would like to get right. paid for this. Dot dot dot. Fairly. Right. Exactly. So. Um, so I wrote this piece, um, and I ended it with, uh, with these three words, I respect music. And it, it became the, the, the biggest music piece in Huffington Post for the, for the year. Mm. Um, and I, when I launched the I Respect Music site, this, it was a simple idea, which is a, a petition to the members of the House Intellectual Property Subcommittee uh, to support artists pay for radio play. And a lot of people still don't know that artists do not get paid anything when their music is on the radio in the United States. What does that mean? Well, when I say R-E-S-P-E-C-T, you probably think of Aretha Franklin. But Aretha Franklin's never made one penny for that song being on the radio in the United States. The United States, in fact, is the only democratic country in the world where artists don't get paid when Mm. their music is on the radio. Aretha did not write that song. Otis Redding wrote that song. And songwriters, along with Otis, do get paid when their music's on the radio, as they should, and not as much as they should. But artists don't get paid anything. And uh, this has been the case for 90 years. So (laughs) um, fortunately, the success of the campaign and the enormous uh, wave of support and grassroots activism that it spawned. There are I Respect Music chapters in countless cities now across the country. I can't go anywhere where people don't hold up I Respect Music signs at my own concerts. Mm. I've done lectures at 60 colleges and universities now. Um, so this has been Fantastic. an ongoing and sustained uh, movement, which is remarkable. Um, and it really speaks to the energy and the will out in, in the, you know, the music world um, for fairness and for justice and to say, I want to be paid fairly. I'm proud of what I do. This is my profession. It's not a hobby. Um, it's a calling. But do you consider that to be, you know, one of your quote-unquote jobs? Is it, you know, well, I'm a musician, but I also have the ECR Music Group, and then I also run the I Respect Music Movement? Or is it, no, Bruce, that thing just kind of runs itself? Well, it's, I don't know about it running itself or not. I, it is one of my jobs, but it's a, okay. Moral, okay. it's a moral obligation. I have, you know, I have a, as, a, as a music maker, I have a responsibility to tell the truth and to try to do right. And it's convenient because those are my responsibilities as a person. So it's not an extra job. <laughs> it's, just, yeah, yeah. it's part of my job on this planet. 
Um, but I do have a re- maybe responsibility is a different is a different word and a better one to use. I do have a responsibility to be someone um, who can you know who can step up and write an article like I did about Spotify. Okay. That's part of I respect music. Yeah. Uh, each and all of us stepping up and. Um, you know, and pointing the finger at unfairness is is crucial. And this is a historic period in um, in American music and in global music. How we, you know, how we figure this out in the next few years is going to determine how music works over the next century. And how? So this is how. a really this is a really important um, watershed moment for people who make music and for people who love music. The most beautiful thing about the I Respect Music campaign is that is how many music lovers have joined the campaign, how many parents mm. of kids who are in music nice. school, nice. how many, how many uh, fans of independent music and major label music and, you know, name, name the genre. People who love music and people who make music are supposed to be on the same side. Yeah, and one of the things that I do feel that the Spotify's of the world that the big broadcasters of the world try to do, and the music pirates of the world. What they try to do is they try to divide music lovers and music makers and, uh, and somehow, <laughs> somehow tell each of us that the other is the problem. When again, <laughs> they're the user. You know, our, our relationship to the people who love the music that we make is an unbreakable one, just as my relationship to all the musicians' work that I love. You know, I mean, growing up on the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Jeff Buckley, and I'm, I'm crazy about Beck's new record. That's my favorite record of the year. Like, that, that connection is an unbreakable one. Yeah, yeah. And so how, how, how we reassemble how music works in the next few years is going to affect how music actually works over the next hundred years. It's a really important time. So I hope the Very people who are so. listening will check out irespectmusic.org and, and join the campaign. Indeed. And if you're checking out this episode of Now Hear This Entertainment because, like Blake, you are also a musician, then you also want to be checking out Tascam. Whatever level of music creation you're at, they've got something for you, home hobbyist, touring professional. I, of course, use all Tascam gear, the headphones that I'm wearing right now, the microphone that I'm talking into, the audio interface that I'm patched in through. They've got recorders, players, Audio for video, for those of you making music videos, a whole line of audio equipment solutions. Check it all out at Tascam.com. Blake, we have talked many times in the show how this new economy, as one guest called it, means that very, very few people are doing just one thing. You know, even the, even the megastars don't just do their music, and that's all. They have other business interests, too. So I usually find myself asking people how they manage their time. But in your case, because of the success of ECR Music Group, and this is why I was asking, you know, if you consider I Respect Music to be like one of the jobs that you do, do you have uh-huh. to challenge yourself to devote time to your music? You know, if, if you didn't have the long-running right. Rockwood Music Hall show, do you think it would be even tougher to make sure that you are doing your music regularly because of so much that you're involved with? Right. Well, it's, it's a great question, and it's one of the questions I get asked the most in other, you know, in in one form or another, the question sort of is, well, so you're a record producer and you're a label owner and you're a recording artist and songwriter. Doesn't each of these parts of your musical life, you know, and, and you're an activist, so don't each of these parts of your life take away from each of the other parts of your life? And the answer is yes, they do. They absolutely do. Uh, me being on tour takes time away from me running the label. Me making a record takes time away from me songwriting. Me running the label takes time away from the others. But here's the thing that I learned, and this goes back to how we were talking about the beginning of my career. Fortunately, what I came away 
with from that experience of having to walk away from my deal is all of the different things that I do uh, with my own music and in my musical life that I have control over, each of them do take time away from each other. But they don't take nearly as much time away from any of them as somebody else coming in and screwing it all up. Mm-hmm. So wow. the worst thing in the world that takes the most amount of time is when you make something you really believe in and you hand it over to other people and they screw it up. Wow, I love that. So that doesn't happen anymore. And so do I, you know, I don't sleep a lot and <laughs> I work hard and I love what I'm doing. I'm incredibly happy and all of it it is a it is a a powerful challenge to keep all of these plates spinning, but it doesn't take nearly as much time as somebody else letting one of those plates fall and having to glue it back together and get it spinning again. Great analogy. So it really, it really does work very, very well, and I'm really happy with it. And I'll say this also, maybe this is the most important part of the answer to your question, which is, to my own surprise, each facet of my musicality um, has made the other facets of my musicality better. I'm a much, much better singer because I'm a, rec- uh, because I'm a record producer, mm. because I've worked with so many other singers, and I've gotten them to the finish line on their own records. Well, I have all of that inside me. I'm a much better songwriter because I'm an arranger. I'm a much, much better touring musician because I own a record label. So my eagle-eye view of everything in my life, um, from, you know, sort of from 30,000 feet, if you will, although that's a high-flying eagle, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that view really helps keep each of them in focus. I'm a much better musician at everything I do because of each of the parts of, of what I have to do. This is a small fraction of that, but I, I remember back on episode 106, I was talking with Danny Brooks. Uh, he's a Canadian-born, uh, Texas-living soul singer, songwriter, and he was saying that you can't just sit in your home market and just play your shows over there. He said, get out to all the all the storied music halls, all the venues, all the cities that are really known. And he said, just... Just being in those places, the legends that have been there will seep into you and, and influence your performance, your songwriting, etc. So I love the way you're saying that they all kind of feed into one another yeah. and they make you better at this and better at this and right on down the line. Okay, now it's time for Bruce's bonus. This is a segment here on Now Hear This Entertainment where I take off my hat as podcast host and put on my hat as president of Now Hear This Incorporated giving a helpful tip for the listeners that are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers who are out there trying hard to make a go of it. Today's bonus is an interview tip. I heard someone being interviewed recently, and at the end, the host said, is there anything else that we should have covered that you'd like to get out? And the guest said, no, just that, and then went on to give out more information. You do want to take advantage of opportunities like those, even if it's just to repeat your website address or whatever is the most important call to action to you. But don't say no and then go on to add something. Say yes, thank you, and then give out that information. And that is today's Bruce's Bonus. How about that? Helpful? There are a whole bunch of tips just like that over all the prior episodes of this show. To make it easy for the listeners out there who are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers to get the tips in one concise format, 
There is a Bruce's Bonus Book Volume 1, Volume 2, and Volume 3 for purchase in ebook format, giving you all the tips from episodes 1 to 40, 41 to 80, and 81 to 120, respectively. Just go to www.brucesbonusbook.com for online ordering and instant delivery. Blake, let's let's exhale a bit here. <laughs> let's let's talk about the the Rockwood Hall music shows. With all that you yeah. do have going on away from the stage, those have to be lots of fun and, and a time for you to be able to put business aside and enjoy making music, especially alongside a lot of the big names that you've been able to attract. Yeah, it's been really one of the greatest experiences of my life, and I'm so thrilled that it's going to keep going. Uh, I've done the show now for two and a half years. It's sold out for two and a half years. I didn't think that we were going to sell out one show, let alone the whole run. Mm. And it's really become a scene. It's become what I've always wanted with a residency, where you keep coming back to the same place. I, I do the show every eight weeks, and we always have a special guest. And this year's guests have been Jesse Harris, uh, Grammy Award-winning songwriter, Tracy Bonham, who is a spectacular uh, recording artist and a, another Grammy nominee. I just had uh, another show two nights ago, and Michael Lenhart, uh, the youngest Grammy winner in the history of the Grammys, mm. was my guest, brilliant trumpet player. Uh, Chris Barron from Spin Doctors is my next guest in March, and Brendan Hines will be the season finale in May. So um, it's just become a fantastic environment uh, where I tell stories and I perform new songs and I try new things, and there's great synergy with the guests. But the most important thing that it's done for me artistically is it's put me on the schedule. So that goes back to how do I juggle all of these things? Well, I've got a really big show in New York every eight weeks, and I just, I've got to deal with it. So if there are other things that are going on, at some point I've got to set them aside and get ready for the show. Yeah. And it's been really healthy for me artistically. Um, and it's, uh, I'm just thrilled that the audience has you know, really, really awesome. connected with the show awesome. and they really get what I'm doing. The basis of all of the touring that I've, I've done over the last two years or, or I should say the foundation underneath all that touring, is that show at Rockwood. So that, mm. that's really the show that I do out on tour. And in April, I'll be on a West Coast tour with Tracy Bonham, and then we're going to do some East Coast dates again as well. So um, it's, it's, it's really honestly been a run that uh, began as kind of an experiment. And it's really, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's too much to say it's really kind of changed my life. It's, it's, an, it's an incredible, incredible experience, and I just love playing there. The Rockwood Music Hall aside, take us through the 100 concerts across 50,000 miles of touring on both sides of the Atlantic that I mentioned back in the intro. Yeah, so I, I just I, I started, you know, these touring opportunities started opening up for me because of the success of the Rockwood run, and I did a month-long tour in Germany, uh, followed by a West Coast run, followed by my first performances in, in London, um, followed by another West Coast run, followed by a national tour of the UK, uh, actually England and Scotland, and um, back to the West Coast with David Poe back in October, and I just came back from another UK tour with Julia Haltigan, uh, and then I'll be off uh, back on the road with, with Tracy in, in the spring. So it's, it's really um, the Rockwood Music Hall residency has become kind of a springboard for me for all of these tours in the U.S. and and in Europe, both in Germany and, and, in, and in the U.K. So it's, and there's no end in sight. I mean, it, it's going to continue through this year. So um, it's, it's just been an, ex, an incredibly exciting time in the midst of all of this to be on the road uh, as much as I've been. 
um, and to and to go out and 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 meet the actual fans in, in their own hometowns. Yeah, it's, it's great, just been because, an incredible experience. Yeah, I did want to ask you. You, you mentioned the spring and, and the remaining Rockwood Music Hall shows, but I, I did want to ask you what 2018 is going to look like in terms of being on the road, whether it's here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and or elsewhere. Yep, um, I'll finish out this season at Rockwood. It'll be a, the. Yep, that's the third season, and I'll be doing the tours with, with Tracy in the spring and the early summer. Um, and then in the fall, there's going to be another tour back in Europe, and season four of my residency will start back up in September. So it just keeps rolling on. Fantastic. Yeah, I was going to ask you if, if we know that there will be a fourth season, so good to hear. There will. I'm speaking today with recording artist, multi-instrumentalist, and record producer Blake Morgan, who is checking in on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from New York. Visit his official website. It's ecrmusicgroup.com, and then just click into the artists section to find Blake. We will have a link to Blake's page on that site on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. Blake, of course, is on social media. Check him out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There are links to all of those on the webpage that I'm referring to. You will find Blake's music there as well, with links to purchase it from iTunes or Amazon. There is also an official YouTube channel for ECR Music Group. And, of course, keep up with Blake online to see dates, times, and locations for all these live performances that he's referring to. Let us know what you think about our show. Suggestions, questions, compliments, or even just a note to say hello. Maybe include where you're listening from and through which platform. The email address is podcast at nhte.net. Blake, two weeks ago on the show, my guest was Joshua Rich, a pianist, composer, and vocalist from Washington, D.C., and I asked him if he felt he was making any money and or getting any new listeners, any new fans from his music being on Pandora. You alluded to that a little bit, but just expand a bit, if you don't mind, uh, on on you and Pandora so the listeners can understand that story. Well, uh, and there was an email exchange between me and the founder of Pandora, uh, Tim Westergren, that was made public uh, in the Huffington Post back in the summer of 2013. And uh, it was... Uh, an embarrassing exchange at the end of the day for Mr. Westergren, and I think it really changed the public perception of the country of the company uh, in the country forever. Um, and the day after our email exchange was published, Pandora lost 130 million dollars mm. in the stock market in market value, and that was really the beginning of I Respect Music because I thought, wow, I didn't I didn't know I could do that. I wonder what else I could do. <laughs> so, <laughs> Pandora, you know. Westergren has since left Pandora. He's actually been sort of swept aside um, or pushed out of his own company. Pandora is a shell of what it used to be, um, and I think they're a cautionary tale for, for the other um, exploitative platforms in music because Pandora really was an Internet radio Goliath, and they, they've fallen. Um, and part of the reason that they, they fell is because artists like me threw rocks at them, and mm-hmm. they went down just like Goliath did. Mm-hmm. So the, the seemingly, um, the seemingly uh, unbeatable, uh, it, it's, it's, a, you know, it's, it's a cautionary tale because they can, they can be beaten and, and they, they, they can fall. Pandora really had a choice uh, to work in partnership with the people who make their only product, the musicians, um, or to continue down the path that they, that they sort of you know, uh, decided to go in. And uh, they wound up really kind of being the next MySpace. Pandora's pretty mm. much finished. 
Um, their stock, their stock at one point was at forty. It's now at five. Oh gosh! So you know they're really on they're on life support, and I I don't see any way how really how they're going to be able to walk out of the hospital, and that's a, <laughs> that's what I mean. Like that's a really cautionary tale for the Spotify's of the world. That can happen to anyone, and if you don't work in partnership with the people who make your stuff, um, you're 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 playing a dangerous game. I don't know why I don't I don't want to make light of it, but for some reason that analogy that you were drawing up made me think of the New England Patriots going completely undefeated all the way to oops, and then they lost in the Super Bowl. So you know you, you talk about this mammoth that think well this they can't be beaten, and all of a sudden like you said you know you throw enough rocks and eventually you, you right. start whittling them down. Um, That's right. I, I, I apologize. I know I'm jumping back and forth here between business and music, but I want to understand: Are you always creating new music, or is it a case of you know, I'm so busy that I only make time to come up with new music when I know it's time to put out a single or an EP or an album. No, I'm always making music. Always. I'm always writing and I'm always, you know, I, I mean, I've got two different records of my own that I'm now working on. So there's, wow. I'm always, I'm always, uh, you know, as Martha Graham said, you got to keep it uh, to, to artists. She said, uh, you know, you got to keep the channel open. So I, I, I try to do that all the time. And certainly since Diamonds in the Dark, uh, the record you're playing some music from, you know that that record really is a is a sea change moment for me, um, and the way that I wrote those songs and what those songs are about. That's I think I think uh, when I die a hundred years from now at the gym, I will still look back at Diamonds in the Dark as there was everything I did before that record and everything I did after that record, and the the manner and the mm. the methodology of how I write and how I make records since Diamonds in the Dark has been uh, uniquely different. Wow. And it's a process that I really love. So I'm I'm always I'm always making stuff, and and the touring actually has not um, made that more difficult. It's made it much more easy. Uh, it's made it much easier because I'm in that zone and uh, and performing, and I'm on yeah, long plane yeah. rides and long car rides where I can be yeah. thinking and mulling over new material as yeah. well. Cool, cool. Well, we're just about done here, but Blake, I feel like I've met my match today in terms of someone else that just works, works, works. Is there <laughs> is there such a thing as a personal life for Blake Morgan? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and this is a personal life, you know. I mean, making music is uh, is what I want to do, um, as you know, as, for as long as I can do it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I I, I, I I've lived I've. I've been born in, grown up in, and lived in New York City my whole life. And I think for any native New Yorker, you know, you realize after a certain point that you boil at a different temperature than other people boil at. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I really am one of those New Yorkers who would rather be a lamppost on Broadway than be the mayor of Los Angeles. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I think that the speed and the energy and the sharpness that this city um, <laughs> operates with and and uh and has i think is is in me as well so the 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 distance between my musical life and my personal life is zero they are Mm. the same thing and uh and that's I say that with a huge smile on my face because that's what I've always wanted. Awesome, awesome. Blake, we're going to close today with a song of yours entitled Best Bad Idea. Before we let you go, tell the listeners all about this song, if you would, please. Well, this is actually, uh, I love this song, and this is, this is actually kind of the closest thing I've ever written to a funny song. I think it's really <laughs> funny. And I think it's, uh, you know, the chorus is, uh, don't, be, don't be sorry when you should be glad. Um, you're the best bad idea I ever had. 
So it's about a it's about a relationship I was in. It's a message to an ex, um, but it's not you know it's not a it's not a screw you song. It's a hey, don't worry about it. You know what? Of all of the terrible ideas I've ever had, you are the at the top of the list. <laughs> That's a great hook. That's a great hook. <laughs> Nicely done, uh, Blake. Thank you ever so much. Really appreciate the time, and really great to talk to you. My pleasure, Bruce. Listeners, I do hope you'll check out other episodes of this show. I'm grateful to everyone who listens, and I'm grateful to my guest today, recording artist, multi-instrumentalist, and record producer Blake Morgan. Again, do visit him online via the ecrmusicgroup.com website. Please engage with him on social media, like his Facebook page, follow him on Twitter and Instagram. Somewhere in there, tell him you heard him and his music on Now Hear This Entertainment. Of course, do purchase Blake's music. It's available on iTunes and Amazon. And keep up with him online for information on where and when you can go see him perform live. Again, our email address for any questions, comments, or suggestions or compliments that you want to send in is podcast at nhte.net. I'll talk to you again next week on NHTE. We'll close you out today with another song from Blake Morgan. This is the one he just talked about. It's called Best Bad Idea. So far and gone from where we must have started. Directions wrong when they seem so clear.